in verse 15. Paul had left Timothy in the city of Ephesus to continue the work that he had begun. Timothy was a young man uh, whom Paul had mentored. He had been with him, taught him, trained him uh, in the ministry, and deemed him worthy to be left in this city to carry on the work that Paul had begun. And so this letter is written to Timothy after he had been in Ephesus and was instructing Timothy on... uh, specific things about uh, the church that was there in Ephesus. And he says in verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. Uh, Paul had been in Ephesus, had left, and um, as he wrote this letter, was hoping to come back and to meet with Timothy again, to encourage him and to help him along. But in the meantime, he had written this letter to him. And he says in verse 15, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. I have very much appreciated the series of messages that Pastor Dan gave on unity in the past few weeks. Um, He finished up about three or four weeks ago. Uh, especially as it relates to music. I think that was, there were some things that were said in there that needed to be said and that we needed to hear, and I hope that you've appreciated them all as well. Listening to the sermons over those weeks um, caused me to evaluate my relationship with you as the assistant pastor of the church, as the music leader, and as a brother in Christ, and how I handle my relationship with you, uh, especially as we talk about these differences and in relationship to unity. But it's also stirred me to, to dive a little bit deeper into the idea of unity. And I'd like to share some of those thoughts with you this morning. Unity, the fact that we are one and together, has personal benefits, doesn't it? Isn't it better for a family to be united than, than have disunity? I mean, just just in living in the same house together? Wouldn't it be better if the people in that house all were focused on the same thing and, and had unity rather than disunity? It's just, it just brings pleasantness to the home, just to be there, right? Wouldn't it be better for a husband and wife to be unified in their goals than to have disunity? Wouldn't the marriage relationship itself be better and be more pleasant and, and have more... Um, I guess, better able to be sustained because there's unity in the marriage. Uh, life would just be better in that, in that sense. What about a company or a business? Wouldn't it be better if all the people who were in that business were all focused on the same thing and there was unity in the, in the business? Wouldn't it be more productive uh, if, if everybody was unified? I think it would. Um, if they all had a common goal, uh, working together rather than working against each other, uh, you'd have... You'd have more productivity and, and more benefit uh, financially, probably, in the business, if that were the case. And so there are some personal benefits to unity in the church, and the church is not immune to this. If we really were a church that were unified, 
there would be some personal benefits to us. I mean, don't you think it would be better to come here knowing that we're all together in, in this world and together in our purpose and together in our goals than if we all were scattered and had different ideas about things? Sure. I think that's, that's very true. And if, if unity really were accomplished here at fellowship, then some of those benefits would fall to us. But is that the real reason that we seek unity? Just so that we can function together, just so that we can have these benefits of, it's, you know, it's, it's nice to come to church on Sunday because everybody's kind of happy and, and uh, welcoming and together and, and, and all of this. Well, yeah, those benefits are great, but I don't think that's the real reason that we as a church should or need to seek unity. There's a much greater reason Unity for the sake of unity isn't, isn't the best reason to pursue it. Um, salvation is kind of the same thing. That's, that was a bad sentence. There's, there's a similar, there's a similar uh, relationship between unity and the church and the benefits we get to our own salvation and the benefits we get. When you think about it. it most of the reasons why we wanted to come to Christ in the first place were selfish reasons, weren't they? We found out that we were without strength, we were without hope, we were without... Um, we needed to be saved because of our sin. And so we came to Christ in the first place because there was a personal need in our life. And when we came to Christ, what did we receive? Benefits galore. You receive Christ, and, and what does he give you? Eternal life. He gives you the Spirit of God which dwells in you. He gives you the Spirit which teaches you and guides you along in this life. He gives you a sense of purpose and understanding of the truth, knowing where you've come from and where you're going. He gives you the ability to grow in your faith. And all of these things, in addition to many others that we have in Christ, are, are benefits that we receive. We'll receive rewards in heaven one day. But there's a greater purpose for our salvation, isn't there? I don't think God saved any one of us just so that we could get what we want. I think God saved us so that he could receive the glory. And that's a much deeper purpose. And while we can reap the benefits of what Christ has done on the cross, that's not the main reason God saved us. And it's, I'm, I'm taking that and trying to apply it here to unity. Unity, there's, there are some great benefits to being unified as a church, but there's a much deeper reason why God expects us and wants us to pursue the unity that Pastor Dan was talking about uh, for those weeks. Our society has taught us just the opposite, has it not? Every decision we make is based on whether or not that decision is going to impact us in a positive way. Which job should I take? This one or that one? We weigh the options. Well, which one's going to be better for me? Which one's going to provide me more income? Which one's going to have the, the least amount of travel time? Which one has more benefits? Which one looks like it's going to be longer term? And so we evaluate all those benefits, and we pick the one that we think is going to be better for us. What person should I marry? The person that I think is going to be the best fit for me. Um, what church should I go to? Well, the one that fits me, the one that I like, the one that has the pastor with the best voice or has the music with the, the most energy or has this or that or whatever. 
You know, we, we choose things based on personal preference and, and really selfishness is what it comes down to. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't weigh things, but when you stop and analyze what the world is teaching us, that is what it wants us to do, which is just the opposite of what God tells us to do, which is to evaluate things on how much we can give and the sacrifice that's involved in it. So why should we be concerned with unity in the local church? Why should we be concerned about unity here at Fellowship? Um, why should we be concerned about unity within the church universal itself with all the other Christians that are in the world? Why, why are these things so important? Well, read verse 15 with me again. He says, in case I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. It's really just two things I want to cover with you this morning. Church unity is vital for us, not because of what it brings to us, but because the church belongs to God. It's his property. And we're going to be taking a look at those, those words in this verse this morning a little bit more deeper. And second, church unity is vital because the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. It's the, we are the visible representation of the reality and the truth of God in this life. No one else is doing that but his church. And so for us to be unified is extremely important, but not just for the personal things that it brings to us. So let's look at those two phrases in verse 15 and, and dig into them a little bit. Church unity first is vital for us because the church, including this one that we're here at this morning, and, and when I say the church, I'm not referring to the walls and the ceiling and the lights. It's you and me. We are the church. You, you and me together as saved people comprise the church. The church is the household of God. At its very essence, it's really not hard to understand what this is talking about. And I want to give an illustration to, to kind of uh, kick us off a little bit on these thoughts. When you visit somebody's house, that house will have rules standards, ways of doing things. And I can remember as a kid, uh, the first time, I not first time, but when I would visit somebody else's house and realize, oh, you do things that way? You know, we don't do it that way. You know? Or you have that food? I've never had that food before. And you realize you know, pe people's homes are, are different from one another. And, and that's very true. But what is expected of you when you visit somebody's house? If, those, if, if you're visiting somebody's house and they have a way of doing things, they have rules established in that house, isn't it incumbent upon you to respect that? If you visit somebody's house and, and they don't allow smoking inside the house, shouldn't you respect that rule and not smoke? I don't think there's any, any of us that don't really understand that. If, uh, if I'm visiting somebody's house and they go to bed at a certain time, and they, and they want everybody to go to bed at a certain time. I say, okay, we'll just respect that rule. Uh, maybe there's noise levels in the home that they want to keep down. Maybe it's, they have neighbors and they don't want to bother the neighbors if it's an apartment situation or something. And so when we go in, you know, I'm not going to yell. I'm not going to uh, create a lot of noise that would disturb. I respect that rule. Um, if the rule is to be at the table at a certain time, then I, I go to the table at a certain time. It's not hard to understand. 
But this passage in verse 15 is compelling because we are not just visitors in God's house. We are God's house. And think about that. This is not a place where we come to visit. When we come here, we are the house of God. We are the household of God. And it, and it becomes incumbent upon us to understand that this isn't our house. This is, this is his house. Um, the Greek word that's used there, it says how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God is the word oikos. And it could be translated literally as a house, referring to the structure of the building, just like uh, we all live in some kind of structure that has walls and ceiling and a foundation. And it is possible, and, it's, and it's, um, it could be translated that way. And in, in that sense, you could think of us in terms of being a building. There are other places in the New Testament. We just read one in Ephesians where he uses the illustration of the temple. We're all being built up together. Um, and that illustration is used for us to help us understand who we are in Christ and how we ought to relate together. But I think the New American Standard does a better job translating it when it uses the word household rather than house. And I don't think what he has here in mind is necessarily the physical structure, but rather the idea of a family. And just as I was describing to you how a household would have certain ways of doing things and standards and rules or whatever, however you want to term that, so does God. And this is his household. We are his household. And in either case, we're compelled to think of ourselves as a church here at Fellowship in terms of belonging completely to God. I'd like to look at a few verses with you just to kind of solidify that idea of this being a household rather than just a house and how he uses the word in other parts of the book. If you look in the same chapter 3 of 1 Timothy in verse 4, when he's giving the list of qualifications for elders, he uses that same word, oikos, in this verse. It says, he must be one who manages his own oikos well. And I don't think he's talking about the physical structure of the building, you know, keeping the walls painted and, and the landscaping trim and all of that. I think he's talking about his, his family, and obviously he refers to his children there in the same verse. So an elder must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Same, uh, same word is used in verse 5. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Verse 12. Deacons must be the husbands of one wife, good managers of their children and their households. That's all the same word. And so I think there's some legitimate... Um, thinking to understand that what, what we are is not just the structure. We're a family. We're a household. Um, look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. Onesiphorus had refreshed Paul, allowed him to stay in his house. Uh, he was not ashamed of Paul. And so he says about Anesiphorus in verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the house, that's the same word, oikos, of Onesiphorus, for he has often refreshed me and he was not ashamed of my chains. And so again, I don't think God was, I mean, uh, Paul was asking for God to grant mercy on his 
house that he lived in. He was talking about his family and the people that lived together there, the household. Titus chapter 1, verse 11. Here Paul is referring to false teachers. In verse 10, he says, There are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole, and there's that word again, oikos. In in the uh, New American Standard, it translates it in this verse, families. They are upsetting whole families, teaching that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And, And so again, I don't think... The ups, I don't think the false teachers were making a mess of somebody's house. They were upsetting the families that lived in these homes. Um, Ephesians 2.19, which we just read. You don't need to turn there. So, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of the household of God. And again, that's that word oikos. And so when we're thinking of, in terms of us coming to Christ, where we were once strangers from God, alienated from the promises of God through Christ, we were brought in together into a household, into a family, like being adopted into a family where there's a mother, father, brothers, sisters, grandparents, and, and the family is the idea here. Um, a couple more verses, Galatians chapter 6. Verse 10, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And there's the word again, the oikos, the household, family, those who belong to God. Um, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6 says, But Christ was, a faith, was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So, and that, again, is the word oikos. First uh, Peter 4, 17, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. So there's, there's plenty of evidence, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, throughout the New Testament, and especially in Paul's writings to Timothy, that we should think of ourselves as the household of God, the family of God, not just the structure, but the people. And if you go back to 1 Timothy now, in chapter 3, who does this house belong to? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, he says that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of of God, which is the church of the living God. We don't use the word of very much in the English language to denote um, ownership. We tend to use the apostrophe S, right? Whose house is that? That's the dyer's house, apostrophe S. Whose car is that? It's Mike's car. You wouldn't say the car of Mike or the house of Dyer. But that's what the word means. The force of the preposition of here has to do with causality and ownership. Whose church is this? This is the church of the living God. 
just as you would claim ownership by something by saying this is mine this is my property that's exactly what he's saying here this is the church of the living god this is the living god's church god says this is my church and any thought that leads us to believe that we were the one who started the church we are the one who's building the church we are the one who came up with it, it it's totally false we're members of the church because God brought us in. We, we cannot claim ownership in any way of the church because it wasn't our idea. This is a supernatural, spiritual thing. The fact that we're even here this morning talking about the truth. This was God's plan. This wasn't our plan. And I can guarantee you, if God had not worked in your life and my life, none of us would be here. We'd be off doing something else. Rather than thinking about the truth, which we're going to get to in just a second. The church was conceived by God. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints." to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Who conceived of all of this? You and I wouldn't have thought of God coming down, paying for sin, and then entering into us through his spirit. That, that, you know, we understand those truths now theologically because he's revealed them to us, but this is his idea. God conceived of the church. The church today is his primary witness. It's how people in the world get to know him. It's through you and me. Every one of us came to Christ because somebody in the church shared the gospel with us in one form or another, whether it was through something that was written or whether it was through verbal witnessing to us. We, we are the church, but we didn't make ourselves. You, you couldn't just go and decide, all right, I, I want to make a church somewhere. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a building. I'm going to buy a piece of property. I'm going to post posters up around town. I'm going to invite people out to you know, give them some things. And I'm just going to invent a church. I'm going to make a church. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's not like a club. It's not like a business that you can start on your own. The church was God's idea. And we are benefiting from it, but we cannot claim ownership of it. This is not our church. When we say it that way, what's your church? Fellowship Bible Church. What's your church? Well, it's another church. It's my church. But it's not. The church itself was conceived of by God, not men. Who's building the church? Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So God conceived of it. It's being built by Jesus Christ, not by us. 
no matter what we think, you know, we can read all the how-to books in the world and, and get all the statistical information that we want about what's making churches grow this way and that way, but it is not us that grows the church. God grows the church when the gospel comes into the life of a person and God uses his gospel, which is the power of God and the salvation, to take a person and bring them out of the realm of Satan into the realm of God and saves them and brings them in. That's how the church has grown. God does it through the gospel. It's not through a great youth program. It's not through great music. It's not through painting the walls a different color or building a second story on your building or whatever it might be. Those, that, that's not building the church. Christ is building the church and he's doing it his way. And who owns the church? Look at Acts chapter 20. Verse 28. This is written to elders. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The church is owned and paid for by God. It's his. It belongs to him. And so ultimately, I'm saying all this because it, it should lead us back to that idea in 1 Timothy 3.15 where it says one ought to know how he should behave himself in the church of God. How one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And so of first importance for us, if we're going to seek unity in our church, it's not so that we can just get along together. It's not just so that we can be happy and have this pleasant experience when we come on Sunday morning of everybody agreeing with each other. We seek unity because this church belongs to God. It is the, it, we, we are the household of God. It's his rules. It's his way. It's his work, his ownership. He's building it. And that in and of itself is the reason that we need to seek unity. It's not for us. It's for him for his glory and what he's doing through the church. Second, and it's in the second half of the verse, where he says that the church of the living God is the pillar and support of the truth. A second and equal reason why we ought to be so concerned about unity is because we are literally the visible representation of God on the earth today. You as an individual represent the Lord Jesus Christ wherever you go as a Christian. When people meet God, how do they meet him? On the street corner? In the woods? Up on a mountain? Where do you meet God? How do you see God? Isn't, isn't it through each other? Because God has saved you and has changed you and is conforming you into his image when you forgive somebody aren't you representing the forgiveness of God when you show compassion on somebody are you not showing the compassion of God when you're kind to somebody are you not showing the kindness of God through your life and how is the truth of God maintained 
from age to age, from generation to generation. Well, we have, obviously, God has revealed it in his book, but who's proclaiming it? Who's talking about it? Who else in the world is clearly representing God to anybody today? Television? The media? Newspaper articles? Books that are being written? Schools? Who is telling you the truth about God? The only place that it's found is through the church of God, through his people. His people, you and me, we read the truth in the word and we proclaim it. That's how God is maintaining the truth and the representation of himself in our society today. Who else is doing it? I can't think of anybody. Maybe we'll do it through a, a book that we might write or an article that we might write or through a written form or something like that, but, but it's still through us, isn't it? It's through people who have been saved, people who are genuine Christians, which is why in verse 15 he calls the church the pillar and the ground of the truth. I know we just had a group that went over to Turkey and Greece and Rome on a tour of Paul's journeys, and one of the places that they stopped was Ephesus. And the idea of a pillar would certainly not be lost on the Ephesians, because in Ephesus was a great structure known as the Temple of Diana, the ruins of which I think everybody saw that went over there. The Temple of Diana was a huge structure with 127 pillars around its outside. Each pillar was made of marble. Some of them were overlaid with gold. Some were studded with jewels. And I didn't know this, but each of those pillars was a gift from a king. And so each of those pillars represented the donation of this particular gift from a particular king. And there were 127 of them. And what was their job? Just to hold up the roof, to hold the structure, the weight that would bear down on those pillars. And the pillars would lift them up and hold them up. And so we know what the pillar was supposed to do. The ground of the truth. This is the only place in the New Testament that this word is used. And it definitely refers to the foundation. And again, if you're thinking about the temple of which they would have had direct contact with. The pillars were there, but there was also a slab, a foundation of rock upon which all of this was built. And anybody who builds, you know how important the foundation is. The foundation has to be level, straight, and able to support the weight of the structure that you're going to build. You build a porch, you've got to put the little sauna tubes down on the ground and fill them up with concrete so that your porch doesn't do this in the wintertime. It's got to stand on something house, a building, whatever it is. And so the, the obvious function of the foundation and the pillars is to hold something up. Now the temple of Diana was there holding up a false religion, a pagan religion. And so I think the contrast and the illustration would have been so clear to the people who were reading this. Just as the, the pillars of the temple are holding up this false pagan religion, the church 
is to be a testimony to the truth and the reality of God. And that weight falls squarely on our shoulders. We are, the church is, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So how important is it for us to be unified as a church, as a body? It's real important. And it really doesn't have anything to do with our likes and dislikes and us getting along and and all of that. It has to do with the truth. When we function together, we can, as a church, hold up the truth of God so that people around us can see it and know it and hear it, understand it, and through it, become saved and enter into a relationship with God. So the last thing about... um, This idea that unity is important because we are the visible representation of God. We're the the pillar and ground. And then that last phrase, of the truth. What is the truth? What is he talking about here? I've heard some people talk about truth in terms of, well, all truth is God's truth. You know, anything that we can say is true, you know, trees need water. Is that true? Yes. Is that God's truth? In a sense, yes, you could say anything that's true would be of God, but but there's something much more specific that's being talked about here. It's not just a general body of facts, things that we know are true. The truth has to do with God himself and how he has revealed himself in the word. And again, I come back to this question, who else in the world is telling you these things? Who else is talking about these things? Who is God? Who has God revealed himself to be in the word? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who's teaching that today? Not many. We could get into a whole debate about evolutionary theory and, and scientific discovery and all of that. But the weight of the evidence actually falls on our side if you want to take a good hard look at it. God did create the heavens and the earth with a single act of creation. He spoke us into existence. And who does that make God to be? He's the source of everything. All that you see around you, including yourself, your life, everything comes from him. Without God, we wouldn't be here. We are God's creation. And he is the creator, which of necessity makes a certain type of relationship to be had between you and God. We didn't invent God, as some say. God invented us. It was a miraculous thing. Fearfully and wonderfully made we are. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything that was created was created by Him through Jesus Christ. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created. Can't say it any clearer than that. By him all things were created. What things? Things in the heavens and things on earth. Things visible and things invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. That's God. He's not an old man rocking on a rocking chair with a long white beard up in heaven just saying, hmm, I think I'm just going to let these guys go their own way. 
He's awesome. He's huge. He's everywhere. He is all-powerful. He knows everything there is to know in a single act of knowing. He doesn't have to think about anything because he knows it already. He can hear your prayer and my prayer at the same time and answer us at the same time with no problem and multiply that by a million. He knows about the ants that are crawling around in the, in the ground outside and the fish that are swimming in the sea. He knows everything that's happening. He's God. He's the source of everything. He is the source of all life. He also is the sustainer of all life. In that same chapter of Colossians 1, verse 17, it says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Even as we get down into the molecular structure and the atomic structure of what we understand, there's still a mystery as to how atoms hold together. The force that holds the, the nucleus of an atom together is still unknown as to exactly what it is. And I don't want to get all mystical and everything, but God's holding it together. Without God and the word of his power, we wouldn't exist as we do now. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says the same thing. He says, he, speaking of Christ, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Who's telling you about this? Where are you hearing the truth about God? It's from the church. It's when, it's when we stand up and proclaim it, when we proclaim it to each other, when we proclaim it to other people, that's holding the truth of God up. We are the pillar. And if we crumble, what happens to the truth? Well, the truth won't go away, but it comes down, right? Who else is God? John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but by me. God is the Savior. He's the only Savior. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There's only one name given among men whereby we must be saved. And that's Jesus Christ himself. It says it clearly in Ephesians 5, 23, if you want to look at that one. Talking again about the relationship of the church to Christ, he uses marriage as an illustration, the, the, the relationship of a husband to his wife and the wife to the husband as an illustration of the church to Jesus Christ, who is the head. He says in verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior, the savior of the body. There's only one person through whom we can be saved, and that's through God. We can't save ourselves through technology. We can't save ourselves through good deeds. We can't save ourselves through social reform or war or anything else. Our sins can only be paid for through Christ, through the shedding of blood, which he accomplished on the cross. He's the only Savior. If you want to be saved and know that your sins are forgiven and you have a hope with God, it's through Christ. That's it. There is no other Savior. God's the source of all life. He's the sustainer of all life. He's the only Savior. And in the end, who's going to be the judge? Isn't it God? Turn to John 5. 
verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Jesus Christ will be our final judge. We're not going to judge each other. And as much consternation as we face with each other, feeling like we're being judged by each other, it really doesn't matter. The only one that really matters is God. And we will all stand before God. Um, if you look at Romans 13. I'm sorry, Romans 14, verse 10. He says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, I, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. God's the final judge. The truth and the reality about God. People say a lot of things about God. You hear the phrase, God is a wonderful plan for your life. Well, it's sort of true. But God's plan isn't all about you, it's about him. He has a wonderful plan for himself, and we get to come along for the ride. Because it's his glory that he's most concerned about. Who is God? Who is saying those things? The truth is wrapped up in how God has revealed himself, and it's also wrapped up in the gospel. The truth of the gospel. The gospel is what makes or breaks the church. A group of people who holds the gospel in high esteem and who believe the gospel, they are a true church. A group of people who deny the gospel or don't hold the gospel up in high esteem, they're not a true church. The gospel is what makes us a church or not. We are the household of God. We need to believe the gospel. What is the gospel? And I won't go through at length with you, but we know what the gospel is. The gospel is our understanding that God provided for us a way to have our sins forgiven through Jesus Christ. That's the essence of the gospel. Romans chapter 3 states very clearly that all of us have sinned and without any help from the outside, we would stand before God in our sin and will be judged. The wages of sin, it's death. We're all doomed to judgment without Christ. But the gospel, which literally means good news, is that God, in his love and in his mercy, has provided a way for you and for me to get back into a right relationship with God, to be reconciled to him through Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. It says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith, 
in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ paid for our sin. In chapter 5 in the same book, verse 6, he says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the gospel. This is what we as a church proclaim. This is we're the pillar and the ground of the truth. It's the truth of the gospel. This is it. All men are called to repent and to believe. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. When Peter was done with his sermon in Acts chapter 2, when he had proclaimed the gospel to the men who were there in Israel, they said, this, this message has stirred us in our hearts, Peter. What do we need to do? And what was his answer? Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Believe. Romans chapter 10. You can turn there since we're in Romans. Verses 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. This is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that we can be saved. And we hold it up as a church. We preach it. We proclaim it. Trusting in Christ brings salvation to anyone who believes. It's the power of God to those who believe. Again, in John 3.16, he who believes has what? Eternal life. You have peace with God and with others. A changed life because God enters in. So why is it so important for us to get along with each other? Not just for the sake of getting along. It's so important because we are God's house. It belongs to him and to him alone. That in and of itself ought to motivate us toward unity. And second, we are the pillar and the ground of the truth. We're holding up, we're the only ones holding up the truth. I mean us, as you know, fellowship's not the only church doing this, but the church in general, as God saves people, the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. We're holding up the truth of who God is and the truth of who Jesus Christ is and the truth of the gospel. And so, I guess in conclusion, let's do our part in maintaining and pursuing unity with each other. Some of the things we fight about are petty. Some of the things we disagree on aren't that important when it comes down to the big picture of who we are in Christ. That we are God's household and the pillar and ground of the truth. So let's pray. Father, I thank you again for just the opportunity this morning to be together. I pray that you would teach us, help us, Lord, as we look into your word to just be concerned about what you're concerned about. Help us, Lord, to make application to these truths in our own lives where they need to be made. Lord, if we deal with people on the basis of selfishness, help us to learn not to do that. 
Help us not to judge our brothers or hold each other in contempt because of an opinion we might hold. Lord, help us to be united around the foundational truths that are found in your word of who you are. Help us to just rejoice in the fact that you are the creator and sustainer and savior of the world. Help us to rejoice in the fact that you sent your only son, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice for sin. Help us to rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the good news that men and women can be saved from their sin through faith, through trusting in Jesus Christ and what he's done. And Lord, help us to not lose sight of these important, fundamental truths of who we are in Christ. Help us, Lord, not to have the mentality that this place or this group of people, this church belongs in any way to us. Lord, we know that you conceived of this idea. You are building your church. And so, Lord, help us to, to know how we ought to conduct ourselves because we belong to you. We're so thankful, Lord, for, uh, for these truths, and I just pray that you'd apply them or help us to apply them in, in whatever way we need to apply them in our own lives personally. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.